0: As we're moving into the depths of the passages about suffering and preparing to suffer, um, I came to a few realizations uh, this week, digging into this at a new level like I never have before. Um, These sermons are standing and, in fact, dancing on our comfortably shod American toes. Uh, No less mine than yours, believe it, because God is going to, through His Word, reveal and divide and lay us bare today. At first, with First John, we get to celebrate with um, with First Peter. We get to celebrate with Peter the mighty gospel of Jesus Christ. We spent several weeks celebrating the mighty gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we were challenged, maybe offended, you may have even thrown popcorn at times by the gospel's vision of Christian community, marriage, authority, etc. Now Peter is going to teach us or attempt to teach us to be prepared to suffer and to stand in the face of death. So I want to encourage you to go ahead and predict your own angry response to this. Go ahead in your heart and prepare yourself for this. Prepare to be affronted and to feel judged. This passage, 1 Peter 4, at least, you will probably feel judged. You will feel like you have been judged and found wanting, unkindly judged. Um, Because I have discovered, as I've thought about it this week, I looked around and I had a conclusion that I reached, and that's this. Few of us are prepared to suffer for our faith in any way. Very few of us are prepared to face any pressure or any persecution at all, much less real-life suffering. For most Americans, our feelings being hurt is sufficient to push us off our faith. That's the American version of suffering, is when we get our little feelings hurt. And that's enough to push us off of it. So what does the suffer-ready life look like? That's what we're going to be looking at. What does a suffer-ready church look like? That's what we're going to be seeing. And here's what I realized this week. It doesn't look much like us. And if you experience that feeling, the offense in that, yeah, I have two all week. The realization that we're not ready. So take a deep breath with me as we dive into this passage in 1 Peter 4. He's been preparing us for this for three chapters, and we didn't know it, he's been setting us up for this punch. That's why chapter 4 begins this, this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Okay, it's another since and therefore passage, so we know to glance back up. 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay, there's the same way of thinking. This is the same way of thinking, the same way of thinking Christ had. That we suffered once for sins, that he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, etc. Now, you may be already going on to this, especially if you're not... uh, from around these parts, if you're not if you're not normal here, normally here at South Spring, you may automatically be beginning to file this away. Oh, here we go. Here's another evangelical preacher creating a military dichotomy in order to 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 freak us out and to scare us with what's going on in the world and to put us in competition with you know them whatever group that that whatever right. And that's the automatic, maybe you go there automatically. I understand that if I randomly walked into a church and this was a sermon, I would have the exact same response emotionally to go, oh goody, another one of those sermons. What I'm telling you is, this is what 1 Peter 4 says. I didn't, I didn't write it, it's just what's there. It is so clearly in this passage that this is going to be the message. Is You start with this word, arm yourselves. It's right there in the passage. This is a fascinating phrase, the idea that we should arm ourselves with this. The Greek word here um, is rooted in the word hoplon, which in the Greek means weapon. Um, a hoplite was a Greek soldier. In other words, a Greek soldier was nothing more than a living weapon. That's how they saw themselves. That's how they behaved. They were living weapons. Um, they, they lived out a life of constant preparation for warfare. That's why thousands of years later, we still talk about the Spartans as the apex predator when it comes to military. We still think in those terms because that's what they did is they armed themselves and they became living weapons themselves. And so literally their name means weapon. That's all they are. They fought in a formation that put them side by side with each other. they called the phalanx. I think we have a picture there. As their shield wall... We got a pic, next picture? Uh-oh. There we go. The shield wall of the Greek formation, as, they, as these living weapons lined up with their shields to create a wall prepared to defeat their enemies, and they did for several hundred years without a loss. Every time the Greeks fought somebody else, they won. Sometimes they were at number 10 to 1, sometimes 20 to 1, several times even more than that, and they won. This formation, these living weapons prepared, arming themselves to fight was exactly what they did, and it's the mindset that anyone living in the Greek culture, though these are Jewish writers, they lived in this Roman Greek culture, both very warlike cultures, and saying, listen, arm yourselves. You're like soldiers. Arm yourselves like hoplites. You're soldiers living in this. Uh, my, what gets, one of the things that gets me excited about when I think about this picture in men's ministry, especially years ago, I realized I needed a philosophy, and I need a symbol. I like symbols, and so I needed a symbol for men's ministry the way I think of it. And this is the symbol I ended up coming up with uh, that, that several people helped me design, was a symbol for it. This is what it means to, be, to live as a Christian man in the church. Shields locked, what God has given us, coming alongside one another and living this out. There's something inspiring in this imagery. Certainly there is to me. I am, that's why I'm camping here a bit, the thought of us arming ourselves with this way of thinking, though, what a fascinating idea. So again, I don't know about you, I love movies, and I love uh, movies, some of the stereotypical guy movies um, from our culture, and one of my favorite things in those movies is that they often, my, my sons will confirm this, is they often include a gearing up montage. You know what I'm talking about? So we, we, ha- we, can't, we can't do um, a lot of scenes from movies um, right now because we're online and Facebook will like turn us off if we so- show a scene from a movie that's, that we don't have somehow copyright li- rights to. But you've seen some of these. So whether you're talking about like Arnold Schwarzenegger getting ready in Commando, a classic famous gearing up scene, maybe the most famous of all time, this one right here, this is Rambo uh, getting ready to go to battle because the headband is really what it's all about, right? I mean, if, if you're not a headband, you're not ready. Or maybe um, maybe Batman going to, the, going to the cavern and gathering from all the different uh, Batman uniforms that he's got to choose from. Another famous one is the fact that Neil's going to need lots of guns, guns, lots of guns. And so the gearing up scenes there that, that we really connect to. However, in my opinion, the best one ever of all time is actually and I could I would have risked it for Facebook if I could have found just the opening montage. If you've never seen the movie Quigley Down Under, let me recommend it, especially if it's, it's, it's PG-13 and up, not, not for anything inappropriate except there's adult themes in it and lots of people die So because it's, it's a Western. Um, uh, but to say that the opening montage is literally a man getting all of his gear ready and then taking it all apart to pack for a journey. And, and I can watch it over and over and over again, the opening scenes from this, as this guy gets ready. He is arming himself, preparing himself. This is the imagery being created here by the Apostle Peter. Arm yourselves. If you're arming yourself, what are you about to do? Fight. Nothing else. You don't arm yourself for a costume party. I mean, you may dress up for a costume party, but if you arm yourself for a costume party, they may kick you out, Right? They don't like you to show up armed. That's a, that's a no-no. This is, a, um, this is part of this idea. This, this word has become common in our culture now, the word weaponizing. Like most things in our culture, it no longer has any actual meaning um, when it gets invented like this. But the word weaponizing is, is a word that's used. I just typed in weaponizing in a Google search, <clears throat> and here are this week's fa- favorites. <clears throat> weaponizing, the follow-up was weaponizing social media. Not surprising this week. Weaponizing the press. Weaponizing COVID-19 and then weaponizing outer space. I'm not even sure. I didn't read that one. So, But, we, but here's, here's what the Apostle Peter is saying. We've got to learn to weaponize our way of thinking. And here's what's wild. We're supposed to weaponize ourselves with a way of thinking like Jesus Christ. Now, this is going to feel a little antithetical. This is going to seem really strange. In other words, we need to arm ourselves with the philosophy of suffering. You need to weaponize sacrifice. Those don't usually go together. That's once again Jesus Christ turning the economy of the world on its head. Usually when you arm yourself, it's so you won't suffer. And Jesus is saying, No, no, when you follow me, you learn to arm yourself with this thought. You're gonna suffer. And it's what we do best. As Christians, what we do better than anybody else is we have a God who is defined by his power and his greatness. But honestly, aren't all gods kind of defined by that? I mean, it doesn't make him that much different from all the other gods power, greatness, might, authority, holiness, righteousness. That's kind of a God thing. Those are. Sacrifice, that makes him different. There aren't any other of those gods. There's no other God who empties Himself and takes on the form and the flesh and the nature of mankind to come and suffer. That's a a distinctive, and that's what makes us special. And He's saying, if you're not ready to suffer, you're not ready to identify with My Son, Jesus Christ. You're not ready. And I will tell you, church, we aren't ready. We're not ready in our own hearts, and we're not preparing other people to be ready either. So here's some of those ways of thinking. Imagine weaponizing yourself with a unity of mind, or weaponizing yourself with sympathy, or brotherly love, or tender heart, or a humble mind. Imagine arming yourself with the plan to be a blessing, to be blessed in suffering. Arm yourself with this. Don't be fearful, don't be troubled. Honor Christ as holy. Prepare to make a defense for the hope you have. Arm yourself with gentleness and respect. That's who we are. That's what what we're being told to arm ourselves with, is with this mindset to identify us with Jesus Christ. 317, for it goes back to tell us, it is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. Can you buckle that on? Can you arm yourself? Can you weaponize the thought that it may be God's will for us to suffer for doing what's right? Are we ready for that? If you knew you were going to be stuck in the snow in your car for a few days, would it affect how you packed your car? If you knew you were going to be stuck in the snow for a week in your house, would it affect how you shopped at the grocery store right before that? I bet it would. How would it look different? Is this our way of thinking? Are we packing for suffering? Are we preparing for that? Is that what we're prepping for? Do we have this in mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus? What if you knew your children were going to face persecution and pressure and bullying for nothing more than being a Christian? They wouldn't even have to proclaim to be a Christian for nothing more than refusing to go along with the crowd in a way in opposition to the faith. What if you knew that was coming? What if you knew your children or your grandchildren were going to face bullying for Christ? Would you prepare them differently? What if you knew my children were going to face persecution for the cause of Christ? Would you be willing to help step in and invest in them to prepare them for that? We have a chance as a church to do this now. If we miss the chance, we risk raising up a generation like Joshua did that after he died, they didn't know the Lord. Will we stand in the wall to train up our children? Protecting them from this pressure is not an option anymore. Protecting them isn't. So here's what struck me as interesting as I was thinking about this. Imagine, imagine if the plan is for us to face suffering. If, you were, if that was your plan was to bring suffering on Christians, wouldn't you love to have a generation before that coddled their children? Wouldn't that be part of your plan? To create a whole generation of children that the parents ran ahead of them with a lawnmower, making sure the grass was never uncomfortable for their little bare, sensitive feet? who hovered over them like a helicopter to make sure that nothing bad ever happened to them. They never faced any challenges. When they faced a hardship, we busted in the door and kicked in and rescued them from whoever was giving them any challenges. Wouldn't it be awesome to prepare a whole generation like that and then bring persecution? If we don't pack and live as though the next generation is going to face this kind of persecution and pressure, we're setting them up and it will be our responsibility. Of course the world is going to declare war on them. The question is, will they be armed with the right way of thinking? This is a plea, not merely a plea for serving in children's ministry. Protecting them is not going to be an option, I believe, in the future. I think we're already there. We're already hearing stories about it. So one of two things is going to happen. It's either going to reverse its direction, in which case the next generation will have to step up and reverse the direction, Or it's not, in which case the next generation is going to have to step up and face persecution. This is not just a plea to people to work in our children's ministry. This is a plea to believers everywhere, online, anywhere in the world, to love everyone's children so fiercely that we will sacrifice our schedule, our comfort, our preferences, our sleep for them. Our children, our grandchildren, and others in discipleship, equipping, and sacrificing that's what we're supposed to be arming ourselves with. I cannot tell you how easy it is to talk somebody out of working with children. All you have to do is have them schedule something nearby it, and now they can't. It's just, they're just too, there's too much going on. Even serving with, and, and sacrificing for other people's children, adoption, fostering, respite care, even serving and equipping the children of your local church, whatever church that may be. We have several people. I grew up, I grew up with, I've told you guys this, I've grown up, and this is, this is a change in our thinking here. We are happy to try to create a rotation that works for people, but the gauntlet that's being thrown down by me now is that you claim an age and an hour and you train them and raise them up. We, we need this desperately. I am convinced, probably, I'm not taking God out of this, that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Mrs. Pat. If Ms. Pat hadn't poured into teaching me the love of Scripture as a child from preschool all the way to middle school, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, after Sunday it's what she did. And, and when I face those challenges, as Rich Mullins asks the question in one of his great songs, did they tell you stories about the saints of old, stories about their faith? They say stories like that make a boy grow bold. Stories like that make a man walk straight. And I, had, I grew up with those stories. And when I faced hardship, I might not have could have quoted a verse, but I could have told you about a person who withstood pressure and kept standing. It may be as simple as singing the gospel into the songs of a baby that's asleep in your arms somebody else's baby, much less, of course, obviously yours, that this is part of who we are. In preschool right now, we have a couple who serves week after week after week, not in a rotation, pre-K for as long as we know. And, and they're, they're going to learn that lesson about be careful what you post on Facebook because, um, can I get the picture of the Willises? This is just a sweet shot. This is such a great picture. I was like, I'm, t- I'm totally using it. I love it. They serve in pre-K, they don't, they're not in a rotation, they don't take many breaks, they just serve with our pre-K kids for as long as anyone around here can remember. It's been a while. And not to brag on them, but until recently they drove an hour to get here to do it, and consider it a blessing that they get to. This is a great encouragement. For years, up until COVID, the Groves did the same thing, uh, David and Marcia Groves have done the same thing for decades. This is a legacy that we all have to be beginning to invest in. I know the Goods do it in grade school. Jared and Courtney Green do it in grade school. This has got to become part of the norm. Part of how we have... And there are probably probably others. I am the last to know a lot of these details in regards to this kind of stuff. There are much more capable and competent people who manage all of this puzzle pieces and Tetris game that working in children's ministry is. And I'm proud of everyone who does. I would love to challenge you and encourage you. You don't have to be a part of a rotation. You can step in and say, these are now my sheep. And I'm going to focus on making sure and raising them up. This is my grade. These are my kids. We will love to work with you in regards to that. Increasing the number of weeks you can work, increasing the flexibility of where you fit in the schedule, we're, we're allowed to do more. We're encouraged to. This is not just so our can finally say, hey, we hit some kind of random number. I'm telling you it's because I think that Peter is warning us that this is coming. And I want our children to be ready. I want our children to be ready to lead the church through persecution or lead our nation back from it. This is the, it's either that or we give in to the flesh for human passion. Here's what Peter continues to say. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, for as to, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. Most importantly, this is about Jesus' identification. You go, wait a minute, if I suffer in the flesh, then I won't sin anymore? Is Peter here saying, hey, if you've ever suffered, you're probably done with sin. You probably never did any of those things again. I can't fathom Peter saying that or meaning that, given what he writes and says and what he believes. That doesn't make much sense. So I think it's more likely the point that Peter is making here is that when you suffer with Jesus and you experience His holy way of suffering, you begin to think and live differently. You begin to see things differently differently when we learn to see the passions of the flesh as they really are let me tell you when that moment is you know when you when you know what the what the passions of the flesh really are right after you've sinned that's when your eyes look like Jesus's eyes in that moment and you look back on the sin and you think what was it two minutes ago that was even tempting to me about that that just looks pathetic now it looks it looks ridiculous now right you look back on this sin, you go, I can't believe I did that. Why was that even tempting? In the moment, it feels like such an overwhelming drive to, to give in to the sins of the flesh, and then 10 minutes later, 5 minutes later, 30 seconds later, you're like, what was, what? Why was that even tempting? I had a nine-course meal, and I just shoved my face full of mud pies. Why would that be a temptation to me? The, the phrase, a dog returning to its vomit, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't do much marketing for sin, And yet we're like, oh, I'll go back to that one. Last time I engaged in that sin, it tasted like vomit. So I think I'll go back to that to find comfort. That's when our eyes are right. And And when we suffer in the faith, when we suffer in the flesh, it begins to look that way the whole time. That's how it must have looked to Jesus when he was on earth. We identify with him. We can't fathom why we were driven to this. Sin is the counterfeit. Sin is the counterfeit. There's something we really want. So what do we do? We invest in something we say we don't want. We say, no, this is what I want. This is most important to me. This is what matters the most to me. So I'm going to take a segue and choose something different than that in the meantime. And I won't ever get what it is I want. Imagine that if you said, you know, my dream in life, I don't think this should be anybody's dream in life, but for the sake of the analogy, my dream in life is to own an expensive Rolex. That you go, that's going to be the measure of success for me. I don't care about Rolexes, one or the other. But the the idea of saying, that's going to be my goal, right? I want an expensive Rolex, but I can only save $50 a month towards my Rolex. That's it. That's all I can do. I've only got this much that I can save towards this Rolex. And you're on your way to the bank the first month. You've got your 50 bucks and your grubby little sweaty hands to go put put it there in the bank so that you're slowly saving up towards your Rolex. And lo and behold, there's a guy on the side of the road, and he's selling Rolexes for 50 bucks. How about that? Is there any part of us that believes that's the real thing? No, but it kind of feels like the real thing. And it kind of ticks a little bit like the real thing. And it kind of looks like the real thing. And so we take that $50 and we invest it. We can say all day long, no, 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 no. This is what's most important to me. And we mean it. Right up until we go, well, but if I can't have this, then I'll just accept this instead. If I can't get to this in time, that's going to be too much hard work. That's going to require too much sacrifice. That's going to require too much of me, but I can have this one now. Here's my 50 bucks, and he gives you a watch that turns your arm green and breaks in 45 seconds, and it never does till the right time. That's what you're dealing with? That's sin. And that's what the Apostle Peter wants us to see. That he wants us to identify with Christ to see sin as what it is, the cheap pathetic counterfeit, and the minute it breaks, and you look at it, and it's broken, and your arm has got green stuff dripping down it, and you go, what was I thinking? What on earth? How did I fall for that? When we connect and identify with Christ, it begins to look that way, and then there's the practicality of it. Once our threshold is expanded, it changes things for us. Once you've, you just aren't impressed anymore. Once you have faced something, facing something less than that doesn't scare you, if you've been without everything, being without something doesn't seem so rough. That's my guess. Since the recent fall of Afghanistan, Christians have gone into hiding or have fled. It's not possible to live openly as a Christian there, according to one of the Christians who's there. You literally will be arrested or killed, guaranteed, if they find out you're a Christian. Many have vanished because they've either been taken or killed or they're in hiding. According to one report, and I had to look this one up to see if this was legit, and apparently it is, is that the Taliban was walking around taking people's phones at gunpoint, opening the phone at gunpoint, and if there was a Bible, executing the person with the phone on the spot. That's what it means to be a Christian there. My guess is they're not too tempted by pornography on their cell phones. They probably don't just pull that thing out and look at something inappropriate on it when you know you could be killed for the Bible that's on your phone. My guess is the temptations of the flesh begin to lose a little power there. Fifty nations are right now listed as very high or above for persecution. And yet, those very same 50 nations added 50 million new Christians in this last year. The number of those countries, by the way, is growing, not shrinking. Christianity is less safe in more parts of the world than ever before. In ten of those nations, Christianity is the largest religion and yet you can be killed for being one. For example, Mexico just joined the list for the first time ever as a place very unsafe for Christians. The most conservative websites, the ones that count literally only deaths that they can clearly, verifiably confirm that a person was killed for no other reason other than faith. So this wouldn't include their denied COVID treatment because they're a Christian and then they die of COVID. That wouldn't count for them or they're put in such horrible starvation situations because they're Christian, they starve to death. That doesn't count. They, this, this website only counts people who are directly killed and for no other reason than the cause of Christ. It says there's at least 5,000 of those a year. Less rigorous, but not necessarily less accurate websites go up to 100,000 a year. People dying for the cause of Christ every year. I have heard it said, I don't know if this is actually true along the way, I don't know how you know for sure, but if you ask somebody, in which year did the most Christians die for their faith, the correct answer for the last 2,000 years has always been this year. We don't think of it, because we're pretty comfy here. Those numbers seem too big. So I'm going to read some, something from an article from the Voice of the Martyrs. After Sanjana came to faith in Jesus Christ through the witness of a Christian neighbor, she found peace she had not known before. For the first time in my life, I was not worried, I was not afraid, and I had peace. Does that sound familiar? Straight out of 1 Peter. That sense of peace has sustained her through the last four years. At At about age 13, Sanjana began to question a Christian teacher about her faith. But knowing the reputation of Sanjana's family, the teacher was too afraid to answer her directly. Instead, the teacher directed her to a Christian neighbor who explained the faith to her over the next two years. So at about age 15, the Christian gave Sanjana a copy of the Gospel of Matthew, which she wrapped in a plastic bag and hid in a hole in the ground. This, by the way, this this, this is not Mogadishu. This is Egypt. Not exactly, you know, the most backwards nation in the world. After reading the gospel and learning more about her faith, Sanjana found it to be the complete opposite of what she'd experienced in her home, and eventually, with deep consideration, she decided to become a follower of Christ. Her father soon noticed she had stopped praying five times a day as required in Islam. When he asked her about it, she told him about her decision to trust Christ, so he beat her. Sanjana was unmoved. When she tried to attend church, she was refused entry because she didn't have the cross tattoo to show that she was a Christian. Check this out in Egypt today. The church won't let you in if you don't have a tattoo of a cross on your arm because they know that unless you're willing to face death, and by the way, having that cross on your arm can get you killed in Egypt, that if you're not willing to do that, you may be a double agent coming in for the Muslim majority to persecute the church. So literally, unless you're willing to die you're not allowed to worship with other believers. That's in the world today, in Egypt. Those are young people's arms, by the way. Christianity is growing in Egypt. Does that sound like us? Yeah, not to me either. Um, when a family saw that Sanjana was serious about her new faith, they challenged her. She stood fast. Her father beat her again and tied her up and locked her in a room, on the family compound. She spent the next three years in that room, half starved and beaten continually. My father would start to beat me, she said, and when he got tired, the other family members would take over. It resulted in a broken arm, fractures in her neck and shoulders, and the family tried to use acid to remove the tattoo she had gotten on her forearm. That's about as far as I can read the story in a public setting with children. The story just gets worse and darker. She's forced to marry a Muslim man and the torture she faces under him is unthinkable. And she stands fast by her faith throughout the entire story. Eventually, the Muslim man is so humiliated by being married to her that he divorces her. For years, asked for why she never rejected her faith in Christ in years of severe abuse, she said this, Suppose I was living in a pigsty like the prodigal son. She said, And then you cleaned me and washed me. You gave me clean food to eat, and I got to wear clean clothes. How can I go back just to escape suffering? I'm an ambassador to God now. How could I ever become a slave again? This is what Peter's trying to prepare us for. This is what Peter, in this gospel, and this in this narrative, in this story, with this gospel, is trying to prepare us that this goes on in the world today, and it could go on anywhere in the world today. When Egyptians are converted and baptized, we talked last week about how we identify with Christ, buried with Christ in death, and raised to walk in the newness of life. Understand that for Egyptians and so many more, that being buried with Christ in death could easily mean you're dead within the week. How many of us would go be baptized if we knew that if they caught us being baptized, it might mean our life? Would or would we go? I mean, it doesn't say you have to be baptized. You don't have to identify with Christ like that. What if it's just financial persecution, government pressure, social media condemnation, loss of grades for students, loss of tenure for a professor, jobs lost, non-profit status, or just the rejection of peers for being on the wrong side of political debates. This kind of pressure is proving sufficient to push many of the poorly rooted Christians all the way off their faith. We have got to be investing in preparing ourselves for suffering. I don't know this but I'll bet when you've been in prison without food, or warmth, or a bed, or your family for the cause of Christ, those simple pathetic temptations, lusts, drunkenness, and partying, I'll bet they seem pathetic to a martyr even before. We as wimps are giving in to them daily. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality. We're about to get a sin list, and I'm going to unpack these just so you'll know what the Apostle Peter is referencing here. The first one, sensuality, means without restraint. It literally, it just, it's just like, ah, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like doing. I'm not going to have any restraint on myself. This is always considered a punishment in the Bible. God, we often, people, Christians will often say like, oh, God's going to punish us because we're, we're, we're without restraint in this way or that way. No, no, according to Romans 1, that is God's punishment. We are already facing it when God removes His restraint on our sin. That's, it's, it's what today, so often, it's amazing to me that even Christian families will talk this way. They'll talk about the college experience. Well, my kids need to go off and have the college experience, meaning a life without restraint. As if that's not the period of time when people are most capable of sharing the gospel. Most able to travel around the world and risk death in the name of Jesus Christ on somebody else's dime, because what they got is time they got lots of time and lots of freedom, and they can go do these things, and instead we treat it as, no, this is a time of debauchery for, ch- for ch- our children. And what we need to be doing is not telling our kids, hey, go off to college and continue to live like a child. In fact, let's have even a deeper adolescent experience than you ever had before versus challenging our young children. It's time to put away childish things. There's an eternity, and now's a great few years to invest there. Instead, we excuse and we wink about their sensuality. There are things that soldiers celebrate, but only within the understanding that soldiers are gathering together who are armed with the proper way of thinking. Ecclesiastes is one of the greatest sources of wisdom. It's a painful source. One of the greatest sources of wisdom ever written by man. When when Solomon said, everything that human beings are tempted by, anything you've ever had in your head, and you go, you know what? Maybe instead of Christianity, maybe instead of trying to live a good life or a moral life, instead I'm just going to fill in the blank from now on and see if that gives me joy. Solomon did everything bigger, badder, and better with less restraint than any of us will ever have the time, resources, or power to do it. And at the end of it, I believe, a broken, beaten man. He crawls to the end of his life saying it was all a huge waste of life. It turns out the only thing valuable in life is to serve the Lord. Everything else was a waste. So why would we tell our young people Oh, go live this way. That's the, that's the assumption. That's sensuality. Next, passions, also known as lusts in some of your versions. This is obsessed, obsessed with what isn't yours to have. That's what, that's what passion means, lust here. Obsessed with something that isn't yours. It belongs to someone else or it's morally wrong. This is the word Jesus used when relating adultery to lusting after a woman. There was a theme song for this in the 80s. It's called, I Wish That I Had Jesse's Girl. Anybody? This entire song is about the very deepest and darkest expressions of lust that a person could have. I have a best friend, and he's got a girlfriend, and they're engaged in sin, and I wish she was sinning with me instead. How's that? That's the message. I had a teacher, a Bible teacher, once described lust this way. It's saying, man, if I could, I would. When you say that to yourself, man, if I could get away with that... I would. That's lust. That's passions. That's what that's about. Um, I had, a, I had a, one of my, the, Lanny Tanton, one of the best teachers I've ever sat under, said he interpreted this whole concept of lust with this. When he talks about when Jesus says, if you lust, it's like committing adultery, he says, Jesus is not impressed by your lack of opportunity. <laughs> and let that, dig, dig, let that sink in. The next one is drunkenness. The literal here in the Greek, lots of wine. The picture here is intoxication, literally wine plus babbling are the words that go together, which makes sense to anybody who's ever been around drunk people. It means to be foolish with wine. to over. This is, this is a message of amount, how much wine. Um, uh, it struck me as that in, in, in East Texas, especially here in Tyler, what we have is a massive problem of dependency on alcohol. We have lots and lots of people, including Christians, who don't know how to make it through the day without a drink, who don't know how to face stress without a drink. It isn't that drinking is inherently wrong. Drinking alcohol is not inherently wrong. Jesus drank alcohol. It's not inherently wrong. But I think I'm confidently saying that Jesus was not dependent on alcohol. He could get through stressors. When I was on jury duty and I got out of jury duty with these other people and we had just put someone in prison essentially for the rest of his life... The stress and grief and horror and pain of that moment as we walk out and we walk out of the courtroom and the only way the other 11 people knew how to deal with the emotional weight of that was to go get a drink. That was literally the first. All, every one of them. Let's go get a drink. Oh my gosh, I need a drink so bad. Like I feel like I need to pray. I think, I think there are other ways, but the problem is we look to these and we become dependent on them. The next one was orgies. You're horrified that that's even in the Bible, that that word even exists in the Bible. You're already like, how is he possibly going to teach on this? Well, here we go. I can do it, I can do it in three words. Mardi Gras. Okay? This is actually the, the, original, the original meaning here means pagan festivals to celebrate immoral behavior. We're going to celebrate that, right? The whole concept, for example, of Mardi Gras is hey, you know what? Starting tomorrow, I'm going to be fasting and focusing my attention on Christ and on His resurrection. So what I better do today is indulge in every sin I can possibly think of. That's not exactly arming yourself with His mindset. The idea would be when you say, hey, I can't wait to gather together to express my immoral behavior with my friends. That's what we're talking about. In the Greek temple this made a lot of, In the Greek temple format, this made a lot of sense. The Greek temple was your one-stop shopping place. It was a bar and a brothel and a temple all in one place. It's where people stopped off on their way to work. In fact, later, when Peter is going to say people are shocked that you don't join in with them, it's probably literally picturing people walking past the temple on the way home from work and everybody else turns to go into the temple and you don't. And men especially, you've been there. When everybody else is going to some place and you know it's the wrong place to go, and they're going to mock you for it. They're going to malign you, right? The next one is drinking parties. If you got a King James, it says banqueting, which offers no help to us in the, this century. Um, it doesn't mean going to a banquet. Banqueting was literally places where you went that wasn't about food. It was about alcohol in that century. This one does not necessitate excess. It necessitates focus. The purpose of the gathering is to drink. This is is what struck me. I realized I've always, when I see this terminology, drinking parties. Now, one, it is fascinating to me that still here we are today, that if you ask young people or not so young people to define all of these behaviors in one, they would actually use the word partying. We would still use that. Oh, what would you do this weekend? Oh, I was partying. Okay, you could list out these things. Oh, you were engaging in these things. That's what partying means, right? It's wild to me that that's still the same, that that hasn't meaningfully changed. But here's what struck me, is that since I was a child, I identify advertisements for Christmas, not with Jesus, but with alcohol. Advertisements for Christmas, almost always. So if you go back and look at magazines, this is a 1972, the year I was born, advertisement. This holiday, one of the nicest things you can do for a good friend is introduce him to another good friend. Meaning bourbon. Right? You introduce, at Christmas time, you ought to be thinking, I need to introduce some of my friends to a new friend. There's no other significant friend you can introduce your friends to at Christmas, is there? Like a baby that was born somewhere around that time, right? No, no. Bourbon. But when I looked at modern, at the modern expression, Christmas celebration, just type that in for an image search, and this is what I get. This hasn't changed. You know you're having fun at Christmas if you're drinking with your friends. Christmas is about family being drunk. That's what it's about. And it's a friends and family drinking. This is, this, this is what is meant by drinking parties. That concept. And the last is lawless idolatry. The Greek choice here, the choice in the English is fascinating. The word lawless seems cold to me because the word can mean disgusting. Shameless. One author referred to it as the odor connected with pagan sacrifices. And I won't go into what was being killed at pagan sacrifices. The worship of idols. What's the application today? Those destructive things that we worship instead of God. The things we sacrifice our lives for instead of Him. I have to say it's intriguing to me that the overarching things, flirting with all these things, is still called partying. partying. They are real and sadly can merely be the disdain or mockery of not being involved That is warm-up persecution. When you get teased for not being involved with the debauchery of everybody else, that's your first warm-up to persecution. When everybody else is going to the club and you're not, when everybody else is doing something that's immoral or wrong and you're not, and the pressure you get, the teasing you get, that's the warm-up for persecution. I don't know that it counts as persecution, it's just the warm-up. And that's enough to push most people off, especially young people. That's enough for most of us to go like, oh, well, then I don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Verse 4, with respect to these, they are surprised you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Again, just like Jesus, the language is almost exactly the same. These sins, are li- th- these sins in our lives keep us from being prepared to suffer. This is step one for living, being prepared to suffer is to get the sin out of our life. These are the enemy agents in our lives. They're the cancer that's wrapped around an organ that it feels like to remove it is to kill us. Peter is demanding that we identify with Jesus. Pay the price, cut them off, starve them out. Live as the living, not as the dead. Then you'll be prepared to die. 1 Peter 2, 21-23, again, this is verbatim, almost exactly what he just said. For this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The world will judge you and find you wanting because you don't want to engage in the same sin they're engaging in. That should be okay with us because their judgment is irrelevant to us. We will face the judgment of the one who judges justly. You see the, the, the identification with Jesus. When we face persecution, we trust God just like Jesus did. I want to comment on an important thing. Some of you saw that list, you heard that list, and you're thinking, oh, shoot. When I went through the list, you may have literally said that kind of thing in your head. Oh, shoot. Because you've done these things, maybe this week. We've done them since we've been believers. Does that mean somehow now we're toast? We're just doomed to hell because that's what's... That's, that. Well, it would mean that, that for that to be the case, we'd have to be defined by our behavior, and that's not how this works. Notice that the word is they and Gentiles. This isn't about not messing up. It's about a change in identity. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Which one are we? Are you living or are you dead? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we're not defined by our sin anymore. Which is another way of saying, so we shouldn't be doing them because that's not who we are. Okay, let's, let's try that. We should be living and following Jesus. We should be living as followers of Jesus Christ, why? Because we are. Let's try that again. We should be fo- living as followers of Jesus Christ because we are. We live according to the truth of what we are, who we are. So, in other words, if I live as though I'm following Jesus, that will make me into a follower of Jesus, right? No. You don't, you don't live as a married person to get married, You don't act like a married person in order to be married. That's a bad idea. You should get married and then act like a married person. The identity change is what's necessary there. We had an identity change. We aren't those people, so we aren't Gentiles anymore, meaning not God's people. We're not the lost or the dead. We're the living. Once we are not a people, now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, and now we have. We're a royal priesthood. If in time... We don't have time to clear up this final verse today, so we're going to pick up with that next time. What I want to do now is I want to focus our attention on this bit, on this bit right here. He has called us to prepare our hearts to suffer, to arm ourselves with sacrifice. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to do that, and I may do this more often. I like this. I'm going to to now read through the entire passage from beginning to end after having taught through it. So what I want you to do is stand with me as we read God's Word, and this will be part of now our invitation is to hear what God's Word said here that we've been unpacking and see if you don't think this is telling us we need to be prepared to suffer. That we need to arm ourselves with that preparation. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. the way God does. If you have questions about that last verse, we'll talk about it next week. For this week, I want us to focus our attention on this question. If, if we were convinced that persecution and pressure could be coming, if we were convinced of that, what would be different? How would we live differently? What would we choose differently? I hope one of them is to be investing in and raising up and equipping a new generation to face it. Pray with me. Father, we come before you humbly as a church. And we will follow the example of Your Son, the command of Your Son, that we would pray that You would send harvesters. The fields are right. Lord, at the same time, that always has felt a little strange to me, that it's as if praying for harvesters is saying, someone other than me. I believe You're saying that we need to pray for more harvesters to work alongside of us. God, so many here are faithful to serve in various ways, here in this church and in other churches and in other communities. And God, this is is who we are. That's what will prepare us for suffering. As we've gone all in and and set ourselves fully on who you are. That our identity is founded completely on who you are. And I pray you would, Lord, help us to be prepared not only to stand strong there, but to raise up others to stand alongside us, shield to shield, facing what the enemy has to throw at us. Lord, I pray for this according to the mighty name of your Son, who's calling us to identify with Him, that we would be prepared to be buried in death so that we can be resurrected to walk in the newness of life. And I pray this for all of us in Your Son's name. Amen. During this time, as Colson's going to be singing, um, you can sing if that's what God leads you to do. You may need to pray. Um, You can come up here and do that. You can pray over there in the corner with the Willis's. You can pray where you are. You may need to delete something off your phone. This morning, you may need to text somebody and apologize. You may need to, to go find someone and, and, uh, and deal with them or apologize with them. Thank you for all those of you who are this first service. We're serving and will continue to do so and are on those rotations. It may be that we need to be challenged to step up in a new way to serve, to equip this next generation, adopting, fostering, ministering, serving, whatever it is. Listen to what the Holy Spirit has for us today to prepare us to be that kind of church and those kinds of people. Thank <laughs>